0: We've been discussing the 1920s for some time now and if you can't tell, I love discussing the 20s in class. Most historians agree that if you could get into a time machine and go back in time, the 1920s would have the most in common when it comes to our modern times. But just like our modern times, there is a lot of social unrest in the 20s. Not everyone was on board with respect to the Roaring 20s. Many saw the loosening of Moors and the transitioning of gender norms as potential poison and a threat to American civilization itself. So we'll be discussing the culture wars of the 1920s here today, a struggle for the soul of America's culture, and in the process, we're gonna see the development of a truly national culture. So what does any of this have to do with organized crime? The development of a national culture, which in many ways had consumerism at its core, aligned the stars perfectly when it comes to the illegal sale and distribution of alcohol. As the consumption of alcohol was forced underground it created a need not only for the product But a place to consume the product So we'll see the emergence of the speakeasy and the culture of the speakeasy both Dovetailed and lent itself to the relaxation of American values owners of these speakeasies many of whom were gangsters understood this new demand and they brought specific innovations to the situation. Mass entertainment, celebrity culture, and the idea that no one should be telling you how to live. In ways, getting behind the speakeasy was one more important way that gangsters became folk heroes in the 20s. Like other elements of prohibition, the speakeasy helped organized criminals make millions and millions of dollars. By 1920, the demographic map had been redrawn in the United States. For the first time in American history, more people are going to live in the cities as opposed to the rural countryside. What had been the number one cited form of an occupation, a farmer, was no longer. Immigration and to some extent internal migration had remade the nation as well. And as we've seen, immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, they spoke different languages, they ate different foods, they worshiped differently, and they did not always share the same moral codes as their native-born counterparts did. All of this rapid social change is going to convince many citizens that American civilization itself was under siege. And in a way, this is an example of the temperance movement because the temperance movement was in so many ways. A product of this impulse to defend American values. As we'll see, the culture wars of the 20s will come in different forms and different fashions. And on one side, we have the native-born largely Protestant social conservatives who are going to subscribe to this idea of a Victorian vision when it comes to culture. Um, what's Victorianism, you ask? Well, it's a cultural movement that traces its roots all the way back to the 1830s in Great Britain. The Queen of England, Queen Victoria, is gonna stress what she calls a higher moral standard. And what this culture emphasizes is restraint and virtue. You cannot undertake something without some higher purpose for it. You can't engage in something simply because it gives you pleasure or it makes you feel good. Anything that you undertake has to have some higher purpose for it. So the Victorians are going to look upon a form of cultural expression, like jazz music, for example, as the ultimate affront to the virtues of American civilization. These are individuals that emphasized, stressed, and listened to classical music. Jazz was all over the map, and therefore it represented a clear and present danger to American civilization. Now, on the other side are the moderns, and it's not easy for me to define these people. And part of the reason for that is they are more or less a hodgepodge of individuals who range from intellectuals to urbanites. But a group that I feel that doesn't get enough focus are people who might loosely be called the counterculture of the jazz age. Now these are people who weren't really overly political and they certainly didn't think of their culture as having any kind of significant social impact. They just sort of adhered to this idea of, if it feels good, then do it. And as we're going to see, it was through this counterculture and the loosening of American social mores and values that will allow American gangsters to make a lot of money. I cannot say this enough, that so much of the culture war of the 20s went back to this contest between the cities and the countryside Who is really gonna win this battle for the soul of American culture? Let's review as to how people in the countryside looked upon the cities. Many people of this variety look upon cities as the the havens of cultural rot. It was not for any lack of purpose that the progressive reformers, many of whom happened to be middle-class Americans, targeted cities for improvements and reforms. Cities were also labeled as uh, uh, dense locations of crime and poverty. Disease is seen as higher volumes in these areas as well. Cities were densely packed with immigrants. And we've talked about how xenophobia provided a force to be reckoned with at the turn of the century. And you get new immigrants that are arriving every day. And even to a lesser extent, you have migrants, internal migrants. We'll see this when we talk about the great migration of African Americans that are also in the process of reshaping what it means to be an American by the 1920s. A quick example of this culture war as it's going to manifest itself between a contest involving the cities and the countryside is going to be what comes to be known as the Scopes Monkey Trial. Now you cannot understand this example unless we have a very brief overview of a series of essays that are going to come to be titled The Fundamentals, A Testimony in Truth. Now these are essays that are published by 1915 and they're going to lead to what we call, loosely, what we refer to as Christian Fundamentalism that what is there in black and white in the Bible is not open for interpretation. It's not subject to the impressions of whoever's reading it. It is the fundamental word of the Creator. And fundamentalism and fundamentalists are going to take aim squarely at the cities and what they perceive to be this dogmatic attitude amongst the American intelligentsia with respect to modern scientific thought. And as I mentioned a second ago, case in point is going to be the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial. Now, part of the reason that it was referred to as a monkey trial had everything to do with the teachings of Charles Darwin. Um, for those of you that are familiar with this, you can tell me that in the 1850s, he, uh, Charles Darwin, that is, is going to write a book entitled The Origin of Species. And bottom line is the, the, the central claim in that book is that plants and animals, organisms, generally speaking, are constantly evolving. And and those those organisms that are naturally selected, that, that fit in and blend in with their environment most effectively, those are the organisms that tend to thrive. Fact of the matter was, what Darwin is going to outline is going to come to be known as evolution. And as things continue to unfold, there are individuals that are going to proclaim that human beings are the descendants of primates, uh, monkeys, apes, hence the term monkey trials. In Dayton, Tennessee, and believe me when I say nothing screamed the countryside quite like Dayton, Tennessee, There's going to be a local ordinance that will prohibit the teaching of Darwinian theory in any public classroom within its jurisdiction. There would be no evolution taught in Dayton, Tennessee. One guy that gets himself into some trouble as far as teaching this is a middle school teacher by the name of John Scopes. The school district fires John Scopes, which is exactly what the American Civil Liberties Union was thinking was going to happen Because the ACLU saw this as a clear and present violation of academic freedom and the right of free speech, that by banning academic freedom in the classroom, they had actually infringed on John Scope's First Amendment rights. So what the ACLU is going to do, now keep in mind, a lot of this is a setup, but what they're going to do is they're going to hire the best lawyer that money can buy, a guy by the name of Clarence Darrow, who had a reputation, especially in the 1920s, of being the preeminent civil libertarian lawyer of his time. It wasn't just this issue that really kind of uh, made him a household name. There were other things that, that also involve early forms of the civil rights movement in places like Detroit with respect to the integration of cemeteries. Another story for another episode, but for right now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the prosecuting attorney because Dayton, Tennessee was not going to be outdone by the ACLU. The prosecuting attorney is a guy that had run for president of the United States and would actually remain a fixture in American politics as the 20th century continued to progress, a guy by the name of William Jennings Bryan. Now Bryan was a champion of the common man. Uh, If you know anything about American history, you can tell me that he runs for uh, uh, president of the United States in 1896 on the democratic party's ticket and he's doing so you know on a populist basis that what we really need to focus on are how we help the farmers how we address the issue of ag- ag- agrarian poverty but the other thing about Brian is he's also a champion for sobriety, right? He's very much a part of that temperance movement that's emphasizing we need to get rid of alcohol because it's it's central in so many other uh social evils in American life. Well, the the results of the Scopes Monkey trial, really there aren't any winners. Scopes loses the case and uh he he's 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 fined in the process. And in this process, Clarence Darrow is actually going to put William Jennings Bryan on the witness stand. And what Darrow's going to do in this is is give a biblical expert an opportunity. In addition to a politician, William Jennings Bryan was seen as one of the leading biblical scholars in American life at the time, and he's going to ask him to explain certain things in both the Old and the New Testaments. And when Brian just didn't have a good explanation for some of these things, I mean, if you think about it, faith is is the essence of either having it or not, you either believe this or you don't, um, what, what a lot of evangelical Christians are going to claim is that Brian was humiliated on the witness stand and Clarence Darrow was doing the humiliation. And as a byproduct, what you're going to see are evangelical Christians pretty much wring their hands of electoral politics really for the foreseeable future. So it's not really going to be until the coming of Ronald Reagan in the late 70s, early 1980s that what you think of as the religious right, uh, uh, conservative Catholic voters, uh, more so evangelical voters are going to become a force to be reckoned with in American politics. Now don't get me wrong, there's still you know, a very large chunk of the American population, but they're not overly political because of this first episode in what might loosely be called the culture wars of the 1920s. There's something else that we need to take into consideration with respect to the culture war, and that was exactly what it means to be an American, and more importantly, who gets to say what proper American behavior consists of. Another important part of the culture wars of the 1920s is going to involve the reemergence of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, for this to make any sense, we need to talk about the original emergence of the KKK. And of course, that's going to trace its roots back to the end of the American Civil War. The legacy of the Civil War, the accomplishments of what comes to be known as Reconstruction, the abolishment of slavery, the making of birthright citizenship, as well as the empowerment of black men when it comes to the right to vote. All of these things involved civil rights and civil liberties for people who were literally defined as legal property not more than 20 years earlier. And so the Ku Klux Klan is a terrorist organization and we would recognize them as such in our modern times the the tactics that they practice would fall loosely into the category of what we would all recognize to be terrorism. They blow up schools, they kidnap people, uh, they they burn places. Uh, this is terrorism in, in its very, very vivid form. Now, in the 1870s, the guy that is president at the time, the war hero of the Civil War, a guy by the name of Ulysses S. Grant, is able to not only prosecute the Klan, in, in a lot of ways, is able to crush it. Now, what brings the Klan back is a couple things. First and foremost, I would point to the, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the films that is considered to be a great film of its era, arguably a great film of all time. It's the 1915 film entitled The Birth of a Nation. And what the birth of a nation does is it kind of grounds the context of Reconstruction as this time period where the big bad federal government came down to the South after the South had already been defeated only to kick it while it was down. Um, what it's trying to do is punish the South for seceding in the first place, for making war in the first place. And it really depicts these African American soldiers, newly freed slaves that are running wild and wreaking havoc on Southern society But in the midst of all of this, you see the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. And not only is the Klan seen in a very positive light, it's seen as the guardian of the traditional ways of the American South. Think of it sort of like as a gatekeeper for a... A time period that had long been gone, but people really pined for. People really wished that they could go back to a, what was seen as a simpler time. Now, of course, all of this is fiction, and it's it's make-believe. We, we know that's not what the Klan was up to, but keep in mind, we're talking about a generation removed from that generation that fought the Civil War. One individual that sees an opportunity in this is a guy by the name of William Joseph Simmons, who essentially rebrands the Klan. And by the early 1920s, the Klan has not only reemerged, but similar to the film, it's reemerging, and it's being seen as this guardian of a simpler time. Keep in mind, guys, we're talking about a time period of rapid social change, and you're also talking about a big change in demographics. You've got Jews coming over, Italians coming over, Russians, Poles, Greeks and virtually every other kind of eastern and southern immigrant group that you can think of. And they're all taking root in these northern cities. And from people, you know, that that were native-born Americans in the first place, and many of them located, embedded in the countryside, what they did was they threatened the American identity. And we begin to see this movement for what was known at the time as 100% Americanism. And so the clan that's going to reemerge in the 1920s, number one, is not going to be based in the South. It's actually going to take root in places like New Jersey, Ohio, Michigan, New York, the North. And it's also going to see itself, similar to the film, it's going to see itself as the guardian of this 100% Americanism uh, movement. The idea was America for Americans. And so I like to think of this, when I, when I teach this part of class, I like to think of this as the Klan essentially broadening its scope of hate. Now, don't get me wrong, they, they've never been a friend of the African American race, but they begin to bring new groups into the category of hate as well. They hate Catholics. They don't like Jews. Uh, They don't like labor organizers or political radicals. They see all of these groups as fundamentally anti-American and individuals that need to be contained, otherwise American civilization as we know it would, would, would really fall under a very great threat. Now you think about the people that we've been talking about in these series. We've been talking about Irish, they're Catholic. We've been talking about Jews, they're a racial and to some extent ethnic minority. We've been talking about immigrants and this xenophobic backlash is taking square aim at the cities. And so in this context, we're going to see an intermixing of what we've been talking about thus far in this series and the culture wars unfolding in the 1920s. (laughs) capitalism is the racket of the ruling class the man who spoke that may have been the quintessential gangster of the nineteen twenties al capone now you and i see capone as arguably the most infamous gangster in american history but that's certainly not how he saw himself as far as capone was concerned he was a businessman and when it came to prohibition what he was doing was supplying the people with the product that they wanted Now, why am I telling you this? Where are we we going with any of this? Well, the thing of this is, is you cannot understand the mainstreaming of organized crime in the United States, let alone people like Al Capone within this, without first connecting this to the culture that's going to emerge in the 1920s. And if you're wondering what's driving this culture, I don't have a great answer for you because it's multifaceted. But I think it might be reduced down to three points. If you really want to look at it this way, I think there's three things that you can see that are driving this cultural evolution that's really beginning to take shape in the 1920s. First is the economy. Now, by 1920, the the, the U.S. economy had changed in several different ways, and and we could spend three, four, five more episodes talking about all the economic changes that took place by the 1920s. But as far as the average American was concerned with these swirling cities and crazy factories, it looked as if you had a lot less control over your financial lives. And to many, average Americans, they they really longed for that simpler time where you could kind of point to the self-made man. And as far as many Americans were concerned, nobody fit that description better than Al Capone. He looks like a self-made millionaire to thousands and thousands of Americans, gangsters, Capone included, really were this up from nothing, rags to riches type of story. There's some hero worship that is going on here, and that's certainly not something that is, you know, relegated to Capone uh, alone. In a way, hero worshiping in the 1920s is, is almost like this American impulse to look backward, look back to what was seen as a simpler time. Um, let me give you a couple quick examples. You've got Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth is going to be arguably the first celebrity athlete in American history. Certainly baseball is what's going to make him a name in this world of celebrity. But what what really is going to endear Babe Ruth in the hearts and minds of the American people has a little bit less to do with uh, his athletic prowess on the baseball field and a lot more to do with his larger than life personality. He was perfectly imperfect, if you want to look at it that way. He didn't exactly eat like you'd expect a professional athlete to eat. Um, he, he drank like a fish. And in a lot of ways, he kind of screamed that everyman sort of persona. Now, not just in sports. You see this in the business community as well. Henry Ford really, really defines that whole idea of farm boy done good this idea that you can rise up from nothing because henry ford was your quintessential amateur what he loved to do was to take things apart and put them back together again and he was good at it now what's really going to put ford on the map is not really industrialization or the contributions that he'll make to american industry now don't get me wrong that's that's really important as well But Ford is going to define successful free market enterprise in the United States by the time that we hit the 1920s. And what that's going to do is it's going to kind of convince Americans from all walks of life that this guy from the, the farmlands of Michigan can kind of make it in this world where the J.P. Morgans and the Andrew Carnegies and the John D. Rockefellers seem to call the shots. Henry Ford is one of these heroes that are being worshiped by Americans because of, you know, the the, the so-called role that he played in in, in the context of a self-made millionaire. Um, This has not escaped the attention of historians. If you want to know more about this sort of thing, uh, check out Warren Sussman, who has written extensively about hero worship in the 1920s. But for right now, we need to move on and talk a little bit about the changing political landscape because this will also help us understand how and why the gangsters are going to find such a good fit in this particular time period. Nothing really defines the political mood of the country by 1920 than the back-to-back presidencies of Harding and Coolidge. Let's start out with Warren G. Harding. He's going to be elected in 1920 as a Republican, and he's going to campaign on the idea of a return to normalcy. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, keep in mind, from the year 1900 to 1917, that was a period that was described as the progressive era. We saw one reform movement after another reform movement really take shape and, in ways, take hold of American life, political and otherwise. And then right after the Progressive Era, you've got the outbreak of World War I. And for the sake of the war effort, you see even more government. You see more regulation. And you see, hear, and feel government more and more and more. What Harding meant when he said a return to normalcy is not only are we going to get back to business as usual, but what we mean by business as usual is that you will see, hear, and feel government a lot less. That is going to be the priority of my administration, is to get government back to its proper role in American life. Um, Harding is going to be one of those rare presidents that actually doesn't live to see the end of one of his terms. He's going to die while in office. And the guy that's going to take over for him and the man that will be elected in the following year is a guy from Massachusetts by the name of Calvin Coolidge. And I tell you that these guys could not be any less alike as far as personalities are concerned if they tried. Uh, Harding was gregarious and outgoing and charming, and Coolidge was that strong, Puritan, silent type. Uh, but, in far as personalities are concerned, that's really where their differences stopped, because these guys are line-to-line when it comes to their political orientation as well as their philosophy. For his part, Calvin Coolidge aspired to be the least president in American history, And what he meant by that was he wanted to really rein in the scope and the power of the federal government because he felt that that was really what made America unique and what made America great. It was the classic uh, example of unanticipated consequences. You might have a very good reason for expanding the government or passing a law, but sometimes, you know, the consequences of doing exactly that may not exactly be what you were looking for, what you were hoping for. Coolidge is later going to be quoted in saying that the chief business of the American people is business. Because if there's one thing that the Harding and Coolidge administrations are really going to represent is this return of a laissez-faire, hands-off approach to government at least as far as the economy is concerned. So I want you to think about something. We've just described two small c conservative Republican politicians people who say I don't like when government gets too big I certainly don't like it when government starts telling people how it should or should not live its life and that that ought to strike you as a little bit odd because it should be a little bit ironic or you should think of it as a little bit ironic that prohibition is coexisting alongside of this conservative approach to government. You know here we are talking about returning America to normalcy and the chief business of the American people and you literally have the federal government through the Volstead Act telling people what, is, what it means to live a moral life and what it means not to. You've got the federal government telling people what they can and can't do as far as alcohol is concerned. So we've talked now about economic drivers. and We've talked about political drivers. What I want to do now is talk about maybe cultural drivers that are really going to kind of evolve what it means to be an American in the 1920s. I really don't have a great way to do this other than to simply say what you get by the 1920s is a relaxation of mores and values in American life. It is that sort of, if it feels good, then do it sort of attitude that we were talking about a couple episodes ago. Now, the 20s themselves really lend themselves to this sort of new attitude because they're really defined by low inflation and low unemployment. So a lot of people can literally afford to indulge themselves in this new sort of carefree attitude, and the culture that is going to kind of present itself is really going to dovetail nicely with this concept of you know happy days literally a song produced toward the end of the nineteen twenties entitled happy days Uh, basically just describe the mood of the country when it comes to the way that people felt uh, to a T. It's a general feel-good, leisurely attitude of Americans in the 1920s and for those of you that are literary scholars you can kind of see this in F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby. Self-indulgence, consumerism, and an obsession with materialism, a a carefree attitude toward the social contract or individual responsibility, all of those are, are are themes that are unmistakably present in The Great Gatsby. And in this respect, the gangsters are gonna fit very nicely into this new cultural mood of the country. But I wanna wrap this up and talk a little bit about the emergence of what historians call a national culture. Because in ways, the 20s are really the first modern decade in American history and in other ways the 20s are really the first decade to even sort of see itself as an actual decade the way that you and i would understand that term but in the 1920s we'll see the emergence of a truly national culture and at its heart would be a brand new invention came out of world war one the radio kdka is going to be the first station to broadcast uh, a radio program and it's going to broadcast out of pittsburgh Really, if you're you're interested, all they were really doing was uh, discussing election returns in that part of the country. But what I do need you to understand here is that radio is going to go on to become the main disseminator of American culture in the first half of the 20th century. Because for the first time in American history, American citizens are hearing the voice of the president. People are listening to reports not only on the World Series, but play-by-plays of the World Series. Or they're tuning in to nationally syndicated radio shows, some of whom are talk shows and others are soap operas that you and I would come to recognize, or at least in some form or fashion, uh, even in the 21st century. So the radio was very central in both the shifting of American culture in the early 20th century, as well as producing a national culture that would have been recognizable in any corner of the country. Now, here's the thing. Gangsters were newsworthy. Both newspapers as well as radio stations featured crime reports and names like Torrio, Masseria, Capone, they all became familiar to the American masses throughout the course of that decade. So now that we've established the interconnections between gangsterism and a changing culture, let's turn our attention to another important topic and one that would further endear the gangster in the hearts and minds of the American people, the enforcement of prohibition. Enforcing prohibition was virtually impossible. Still, there were prominent Americans that insisted on doing just that. Our good friend Wayne Wheeler was one of them. Now, keep in mind, Wheeler was more or less the architect of the Volstead Act, and when he found out that he had this law passed only to see tens of thousands of Americans basically thumbing their nose at the law uh and and consuming alcohol in some cases very publicly it was infuriating and when word got back to Wayne Wheeler that this was happening he actually proposed the use of poison in industrial alcohol simply to prevent it from being used in beverages not exactly the best way to go about enforcing this law. In any case, to be effective, prohibition required a huge expansion of government power, a huge presence of government power. At a time when most Americans were, at the very least, wary of regulation, and I think it's fair to say most were, were, were pretty much done with it. We're talking about 20 years of it, and most Americans simply were intolerable of a bigger government presence at that particular moment. Ground zero when it came to enforcing prohibition was New York City or as some of the more ardent dries would refer to it as Satan's seat. Back in Washington, Wayne Wheeler, uh, Wheeler headed the Prohibition Bureau, and he hand-selected his men that he felt like he could trust, and these were people that, you know, saw this as a bigger calling, its cause was bigger than what they could be bought off with with simple money, so he felt relatively safe in, in, in trusting his men. Still, this is a huge, huge, daunting job, and, and New York, in a way, it might be ground zero, but it's really the tip of the iceberg, not even really. To kind of further his cause, we see the establishment of uh, various laws that are designed to assist the the process of enforcing prohibition, including but not limited to the Mullen-Gage law. Now, you have to understand what this law said. It allowed private citizens to actually sue an intoxicated person for damages that were suffered uh, to property or otherwise. And so, in a way, private citizens had an incentive to actually help the government in the process of enforcing prohibition. Outside of that, there was an unmistakable police presence in New York City, and these officers would raid apartments, they would pat down pedestrians, they would station themselves outside of restaurants, but understand that these, at best, are deterrents. We've spent plenty of time elaborating on what ward politics was and how it worked, And if you really wanted to make sure that a business venture, like a speakeasy, like a bootlegging network, was going to get up and off the ground uh, uninterrupted by a police presence, you made sure that you paid the right bosses who made sure that the right police officers happened to be somewhere else when those inspections were scheduled to take place. But understand that this public police presence is very very much publicly on display it really kind of made the bootleggers look like they were folk heroes uh, it made gangsters look like they were folk heroes it was not lost on most Americans that the Victorians, uh, the the, the culture that was dominant in American life before the emergence of the 1920s, it was led by not only native-born Protestant Americans but people that were relatively well-to-do. At at the very least they were upper middle class and here these Victorians are telling mainstream rank-and-file Americans how they should live and, and why they should do that. They were basically telling them how to live their lives. Well, that's never been especially popular in American history. You don't have to look at the 1920s. Look, look at virtually any time period in American history, and that's not going to go very far. And as a consequence, thousands of Americans are going to find a number of different ways to get around the Volstead Act. Now, the only place that was wetter, if you want to look at it that way, than New York City was New Orleans. And throughout American history, the South had this historic resentment of what was perceived to be intrusion of the federal government on its way of life. And in Louisiana, the rural upstate parishes uh, were specifically, you know, suited for these illicit stills that could be concealed in these thick woodland areas, and they're going to provide Louisianans with gallons and gallons of moonshine, gallons and gallons of what was coming to be known as busthead whiskey. And as we've talked about in other episodes thus far, uh, the Gulf Coast of Louisiana was a natural destination for rum runners. And so Louisiana, much, or New Orleans, Louisiana, much like New York City, is going to be a hot spot when it comes to the test of enforcing prohibition. When the governor of Louisiana, a guy by the name of Huey Kingfish Long, was asked what he planned on doing to enforce the Volstead Act, what he replied with was not a damn thing. Now, speaking of the South, the 1920s is going to align with a period of a reshuffling of racial demographics. 1877 to 1945 were arguably the darkest time period in American history when it comes to race relations. And by the 1920s, thousands of black Americans decided to take their chances in the urban north. And in the process, African Americans are not only going to diversify urban centers like New York and Chicago, but also the underworlds that had existed within those centers. If you're a regular on this series, you know that we've talked about World War I and how it led to numerous different developments in American history. Well, We're going to pick up that conversation here again today because we're going to see how the war helps to diversify organized crime in the United States. One thing that World War I leads to is a process known as the Great Migration. And what the Great Migration essentially was is a process whereby tens of thousands of African-Americans who are scattered all throughout the rural south, so we're talking Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Tennessee, they're going to leave the land of their ancestors and they're going to relocate to the urban north. Now, why is this happening? And why is it happening when it's happening? Well, the fact is, the war is going to create a labor shortage. There's not enough workers to go around in in the urban north, which had always been the epicenter of production in American history. Northern workers are going to enlist in the service, and they're going to be sent over to France, sent over to Europe to fight this thing. And if that's not enough, our, our traditional sources of cheap labor, and I'm talking Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, those sources are going to be cut off due to the conflict, so there's not a way to get workers where they are needed. You're going to have labor agents from all over the north, really. They're going to scour every corner of the country including the rural south and they're going to try to entice people from that part of the country to relocate to fill this labor void and african americans are going to begin showing up by the tens of thousands and in the process they're going to create something called the black metropolis now let me slow things down and explain what i'm talking about By black metropolis, I mean a huge concentration of African-American people into an area that either had a very small black community or didn't really have one whatsoever before this process began unfolding with the Great Migration. In Detroit, which is going to receive tens of thousands of African-American transplants, the black metropolis is going to be called Paradise Valley. That's going to be the heart of the black community in South Detroit. In Chicago, that's going to be the south side, to a lesser extent the west side, and arguably the, the most important of the black metropolies is going to be in New York and the borough of Harlem. Now, the war is, is simply one element of what's going to cause the Great Migration because it's very one-sided. You have to understand that African-Americans, like any group of people, have agency, they have minds of their own, they want to create a better life for themselves and their children, they had an agenda, and that agenda was freedom. And the fact of the matter is, the years 1877 to 1945 are some of the darkest years in American history if you're talking about race relations. And from the African-American perspective, at least in the South, there's a perceived freedom that exists in the North that just does not exist in the South. In places like Chicago, you can send your kids to school. In Chicago, you can sit down next to a white person, perhaps even strike up a conversation, and not really give it a second thought. And maybe most importantly of all, you can vote in the North. And not only are you able to cast a ballot and directly participate in the democratic process, in certain instances you can actually vote for black candidates. There's a black political base that's beginning to grow in New York, in Detroit, in Chicago, and you're beginning to see it unfold in the early 1920s. It's a product of the Great Migration. Now, here's the thing with Northern freedom. It's not as free or as democratic as it's cracked up to be. There's a form of Northern racism. Of course, there's a form of Northern racism because racism exists everywhere and it's unmistakably present, but it's not nearly as overt or in your face as its Southern counterpart. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. I wanna talk about the use of restrictive covenants. Now, I know you know what a covenant is as an agreement. But what a restrictive covenant was, was something that had to do with real estate. It was a promise that you, the homeowner, if and when you ever had to sell, you would only sell it to a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant family. It was a way that was seen of keeping property values high because at this particular time in American history, the idea here was that people of color could potentially drag down property values. And you certainly didn't want that if you were the neighborhood. But the use of restrictive covenants weren't going to go anywhere anytime soon. We're we're going to continue to talk about these things even as late as the 1950s. But there were all kinds of different institutions that were all subject to Jim Crow practices. Restaurants, hotels, doctor's office, dentist's office, uh, funeral homes, all were subject to Jim Crow separate and unequal practices well the result of all of this is going to be ghettoization and once again if you've been a regular on this series the term ghettoization should be relatively familiar to you think back to when we were talking about marm mandelbaum in new york There were certain places where Jewish uh, residents and or entrepreneurs were just simply not welcome. And what it led to was the Judengasse. It was the Jewish ghetto. It was the only place in New York that they were allowed to exist. And although this was bad, and I certainly don't want to try to sugarcoat this in any kind of way, it also created an opportunity for business people like Mandelbaum, well, the ghettoization of the black community is going to create a similar opportunity for black business men and women. These opportunities are actually going to extend beyond the scope of just being able to make money. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of money to be made when you're the only game in town. It's also going to result in an opportunity for black business leaders to basically become leaders within the community, pillars, institutions within the community, Years ago, there was a guy from Michigan State that wrote a book entitled, Life for Us is What We Make of It. This guy's name is Richard Thomas, and he's really going to introduce this concept of black community building in these urban metropolises throughout the North. Uh, Shannon King wrote a really great book entitled, Whose Harlem Is This Anyway?, And once again, it talks about the process of community building in the black community, largely in the 1920s. I'm going to introduce you to one of these business leaders that is absolutely going to play a role in the process of community building in Harlem in the 1920s. But before we do, I need to talk to you a little bit about the Harlem Renaissance. Now, essentially what the Harlem Renaissance was is the blossoming of African-American culture Predominantly in the 1920s and predominantly in New York City, in particular the borough of Harlem. Harlem, you have to understand, was not just a really huge concentration of black people. It was a huge concentration of black artists. And when I say the word artists, I mean that very, very broadly defined. You had musicians like Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald and they called Harlem home you had poets like Langston Hughes, you had painters like Jacob Lawrence. Um, You don't necessarily think about political philosophers but they too are gonna uh, gonna emigrate to Harlem and take part of this blossoming in in the Harlem Renaissance. Now before we go any further I need you to understand that part of what I think these artists thought that they were doing was using the arts, again, the arts broadly defined, using the arts to promote civil rights, using the arts to promote first-class citizenship rights. One of those political philosophers that I'd like you to be mindful of would be a Jamaican-born Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey is going to land in Harlem and when he does he's going to be instrumental in the foundation of what's going to come to be known as the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Now for all intents and purposes what this was was a community self-help organization. It invested in the black community. It was run by the black community and it existed for the black community. The other thing that it was was the leading institution for black nationalism in the United States by the 1920s. If the term black nationalism sounds a bit fuzzy to you, there's a guy from the early 20th century, the Harvard-educated W.E.B. Du Bois, who's really going to coin the term. And Du Bois's philosophy is relatively simple. You're never going to get a fair shake from white America, so why do you continue to beg for integration? We don't need integration. What we need is self-reliance for the black community. We need what Du Bois called the talented 10th, uh, the, the black lawyers and black bankers and black teachers and black businessmen. We need those people to stand up and really invest in the black community, and, and provide us with a strong foundation so that we don't have to rely on white America and we don't have to continue to beg for integration. Well, by the 1920s, Du Bois had kind of faded from the scene. I shouldn't say faded. He's, he's just not as much of a spokesperson for black nationalism as he once upon a time was. But the guy that's really going to replace him is going to be Marcus Garvey. And among other things, what the Universal Negro Improvement Association is calling for is Africa for the Africans. Now keep in mind, at this particular moment, Africa, the continent of Africa, had been carved up by virtually every European country that you can think of. They all had colonies. What the association is calling for is not only the decolonization of of Africa, but the empowerment of Africans, pan-Africa Africans. In other words, the descendants of Africans that had been brought to the Americas and then transformed into slaves in American history. The Universal Negro Improvement Association was calling for African Americans to go to Africa and basically establish a black power, uh, a black supremacy sort of uh, uh, way of life similar to what was going on in North America as far as white supremacy was concerned. But let me put a pin in that for just a second. We'll come back to Garvey here for a minute because I want to introduce you to somebody else. One of these black business leaders that I was referring to just a second ago, another Caribbean-born transplant that's going to come to call Harlem home, Stephanie St. Clair. St. Clair is going to emigrate from the French West Indies and she's going to land in Harlem in 1911 and by the 1920s she's going to gravitate towards New York's underground economy. I'm going to to tell you how and why here in a second. But basically St. Clair is going to become a numbers queen in Harlem And Marcus Garvey existed primarily because numbers kings and queens, including but not limited to Stephanie St. Clair, provided him with funding, provided him with all kinds of financial resources and all kinds of propaganda that helped uh, Garvey and other civil rights activists get their message out there. Now, a second ago, I mentioned the numbers racket, and that's something, again, if, if you're listening this deep into the series and have and managed to retain you, my guess is you've heard of this racket before. Officially, what numbers is called is policy banking, and it's basically an illegal lottery. The way it works is, is sort of like this it would be a three-digit number that you would place a bet on. And there were all kinds of interesting and crazy ways that you could come up with this number. But you would give your, uh, your bookie a three-digit number that you wanted to place a bet on. And the way that that winning number was generated, it was usually the last three digits of the racetrack bettors that were placed on horse races And those numbers were published all throughout racing journals, as well as newspapers in New York City. It was an illegal lottery that was played all across working-class America, but especially in New York. But in New York, St. Clair and others are going to kind of transform this as a way to basically invest in the community. Hear me out. What the numbers racket provided in places like New York were jobs, You needed people to run the numbers, to take the bets to and from places where they were made. You needed bet makers themselves. You needed analysts to analyze the bets. Indirectly, it provided business for the black community. A lot of times you would place these bets in places like barber shops, social clubs, restaurants, and as I mentioned a minute ago, that was not something that if you happened to be black, you could just roll into any barbershop and expect to get that service. So once again, this is a community building element that we're seeing take shape and unfold in the 1920s. Maybe most importantly of all, this was a cheap form of entertainment. And for a lot of people, it's going to really blur what was perceived to be, you know, respectable in the process of the great migration and resettlement and what was considered to be giving African-Americans as a broad group, essentially a a bad name. Well, Stephanie St. Clair is going to become a very wealthy Harlemite, and in the process, she's going to become a folk hero in the black community. So as I was saying, World War I is going to prompt the Great Migration, and in New York, all of this influx of black people will lead to the Harlem Renaissance, which would really come to characterize the Jazz Age in the United States. And as I mentioned before, this combination of all of these black artists concentrated in such a compact area and specific restrictive social provisions, it's going to result in some pretty unique opportunities for the black business community. And these opportunities are going to extend far beyond financial opportunities because in so many ways, it's going to allow black business leaders to really become the champions for civil rights and first-class citizenship. It did not take long for Stephanie St. Clair's policy racket to flourish, and she quickly established herself as one of Harlem's numbers queens. All throughout the community, she became known as Madame St. Clair, and in this process, she's going to become one of these champions, albeit a pretty non-traditional champion of civil rights. You have to understand that numbers were viewed as an instrumental part of the black community. It may have been in a legal lottery, but it was a lottery that really was the lifeblood of the black community in a lot of different ways. Hear me out. St. Clair routinely bought ads in local newspapers to educate blacks on their civil rights. She would go as far as to bring city officials' attention to police brutality, specifically in the black community. She would run ads in local newspapers that would draw attention to things like police corruption. And when and where necessary, she would provide money for the legal defense of African Americans who had been accused of crimes, So you can see this very blurry line with respect to, I don't know if you want to call it respectability, but legality and illegality. Uh, It's not really that much different than what we were talking about with uh, McKenna and Coughlin in Chicago. Uh, Of course, what they were doing back in the Gilded Age was patently illegal, but it really did serve the best interests, in certain ways of the community at the same time. But you might say that Sinclair had just a little bit too much success. Arthur Simon Flagenheimer was better known as Dutch Schultz. And this is not going to be the last time that we talk about Dutch Schultz. He's going to play a very important role as our series continues to unfold. But for right now, I need you to know him as a gangster. And his business was specifically concentrated in both bootlegging, but especially Gambling, And the numbers racket soon proved to be a very lucrative racket and competition for turf soon followed. Toward the end of the 1920s, uh, the main competitor in the numbers racket uh, was going to be Dutch Schultz and Stephanie St. Clair. And it's going to be in this context that we were going to see the rise of Ellsworth Raymond Johnson. Johnson, who would earn the nickname Bumpy Johnson due to the bumps on the back of his head and neck, was a product of the Great Migration. He had emigrated from South Carolina, and he'd landed in New York City. And like many other people that we've talked about in this series so far, he quickly fell into criminal enterprises and had begun to attract the attention of many of New York's black underworld leaders. It was not long before he became the enforcer bodyguard, and confidant of Stephanie St. Clair. You're going to see Johnson inherit a lot of her criminal enterprise, but we do have some things to talk about before we can go down that road. What I'd like you to know for the here and now is just like St. Clair, Bumpy Johnson is going to be a force for the civil rights movement in New York and really the urban north, generally speaking. And it's not going to end in the 1920s. He's going to remain a force for civil rights well into the 1960s. There's a film that was released in the late 1990s entitled Hoodlum, which does a relatively good job of depicting the role that people like Johnson would play with respect to civil rights in a northern context. But let me get back to this turf war between Sinclair and uh, uh, Dutch Schultz. The bottom line is this. Dutch Schultz wanted St. Clair to pay protection money to him, and she simply refused. Instead, what she did was she relied on Johnson, who, keep in mind, is her main enforcer at this point, to attack some of Schultz's storefronts, shoot them up, bomb them, that sort of thing, and she's also tipping off the police, which is going to result in a massive raid, which would cripple Schultz's business for a time. And this turf war between Schultz and St. Clair was costly and bloody for both sides. But by the mid-1920s, St. Clair had ventured into legitimate enterprises, and she no longer needed the numbers racket the way that she did earlier on in her career. So toward the end of the decade, she is going to hand her operation over to Bumpy Johnson. So it's in this process that Bumpy Johnson is going to become the godfather of Harlem. He is going to be instrumental in the brokering of peace with the mafia, the modern form of the mafia, and it's really going to be instrumental when it comes to ending this turf war. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, and certainly we'll cover this later on in the series, but he is literally going to take care of a problem for the mafia, and as you'll see, that problem is really going to involve Dutch Schultz, who by the mid-1930s posed a direct threat to the overall viability of organized crime in the United States. Once again, this will make a little bit better sense once we get to that period in the chronology. But for right now, uh, what I need you to understand is that Bumpy is going to become Charles Luciano's capo in Harlem. Keep in mind, Schultz was a Jewish gangster, and he was certainly a force to be reckoned with. And by helping to eliminate Schultz, Johnson demonstrated that he could be trusted and he could be counted upon. And so Luciano never attempted to annex the Harlem territory after Schultz had um, departed the scene. In the process, the black community retained Johnson, who continued to help foster the community building process in Harlem. Now, the numbers racket represents one form of this cultural blending, uh, forcing different races, different ethnicities uh, together through business associations. And although it was a very, very important process when it comes to racial mixing, it certainly was not the only one. We've been talking a lot about the development of American culture here today, and specifically we've been talking about the development of a national culture. In ways, the shutting off of immigration from abroad helped to produce this, and in other ways, institutions like Harlem's Jazz Music, which by this point in time was being broadcasted on the new consumer item of the era, the radio, also helped to streamline this process but arguably nothing did more for the development of a national culture quite like consumerism so by nineteen twenty the united states economy had transitioned to what economists refer to as a consumer based economy our economy was basically predicated on consumers people like me and you buying goods and services and it worked fantastically as long as consumers spent money the economy by this point in time has to manufacture goods and services as well as consumers and this is going to give rise to things like the advertising industry it's also going to give rise to things like credit in any case multinational corporations would advertise and sell their products to a national clientele base and in this process americans found themselves shopping at the same stores seeing the same films buying the same products and the result was a national culture one that was recognizable in any corner of the country once again i know what you're thinking what does consumerism or even the development of a national culture have to do with organized crime and the simple answer is the emergence of the speakeasy Now, we're going to have a robust conversation about what a speakeasy is, but for the time being, need you to understand that the speakeasy was the point of consumption with respect to illegal alcoholic beverages. Okay, so the term saloon was simply stricken from the English language upon the adoption of the Volstead Act. And what that meant was saloons, and and there were still thousands of them that were operating even on the eve of the Volstead Act's adoption, those saloons are going to be driven underground. So what the saloons are going to do is they're going to emerge as these speakeasies. Now, if you want to use the vernacular of the time, if you want to be like a guy like Johnny Torrio, you can just shorten your terminology here and just refer to them as speaks. But what the Speaks were, were illegal drinking establishments that were littered throughout the country. And these speakeasies, similar to Harlem's Jazz, are also helping to integrate and mainstream American life. And here's the reason why. Everybody inside that speakeasy was breaking the law. It was one of those things where if everyone's doing it... If everyone's acting this way, it doesn't make it weird. You can kind of blend in and and you become one of the crowd. And it's going to blur the social lines in American life because at the same time that there are middle class consumers of alcohol inside one of these speaks, there's also working class Americans that were inside these establishments as well. I mean, one of the things that really came to define the Victorian age was the separation of the classes. But what the speakeasies did was they offered Americans wishing to have a drink a place to do so. And in the process, we see a continuation of these social mores and values being relaxed. I'm not going to say that the things that took place on the inside of a speakeasy simply did not happen on the outside, but in the company of other patrons inside these speakeasies, it certainly made it much easier to go along with the crowd. Initially, speakeasies were merely establishments that served alcohol. There were no thrills, not even really any kind of uh, entertainment. And in many ways, though not always, these these institutions were owned and operated by organized criminals. But eventually, especially once people begin to realize that there's a lot of money in these things, eventually they are going to become symbols of the culture of the Roaring Twenties, luxury indulgence, and in other ways, criminality. Now, obviously, we don't have enough time to talk about every speakeasy, even within a region, let alone the country, but there are a few famous ones that I'd like to share with you. (music) You know me well enough by now to know that I like to give a physical description to the institutions that we discuss on this series, and certainly that includes the speakeasy as well. Now, if you want a physical representation, what it would have looked like, what it would have felt like to walk into a 1920s-era speakeasy, and you happen to be in or around the Dallas-Fort Worth area, check out the Nile City Hall Saloon, which is located in the stockyards at Fort Worth. It's in a basement, and it's certainly got that 1920s vibe going on. It is a good representation of what it would have looked like, what it would have felt like, to walk into a saloon, uh, a speakeasy, I should say, in the 1920s. But the guy that's really going to kind of innovate things and develop the understanding of what a speakeasy should be is a guy by the name of Larry Fay. Now, Fay is a former run-runner. He's not necessarily as successful as someone like Bill Dwyer, but what's really going to bring him some acclaim is the fact that he is going to be the founder of the El Fay Club. Now, the El Fay Club is going to be one of not only the earliest speakeasies, modern sense of the word, speakeasies, but it's also going to become the place to see and be seen. It's located on 46th Street near Broadway in New York City. But one of the things that Faye is able to do, able to recognize, before many other people are able to recognize this, is you got to give the people a reason to choose your club. And so what he's going to do to that end is he's going to reach out and he's going to grab himself a celebrity. In particular, he's going to team up with Mary Louise Cecilia Texas Guinan. Now, Guinan was a former silent film star, making her a person recognizable to Americans of all walks of life, really, from coast to coast. And she was a marketer's dream. She knew exactly how to open an establishment for business on any given night of the week. She'd open the door and she'd greet the people, most of whom happened to be men, with a, hello, suckers, and the people just ate it up. And pretty quickly, Texas Guinan became known as the queen of the nightclubs, and the El Fe became an exclusive club to see and be seen. Now, I'm not necessarily willing to go as far as to say that the El Fay club is really at the forefront of the development of celebrity culture, but it certainly needs to be in the conversation, so we're really getting into these modern times. Um, Guinan was so successful at what she did for uh, for, for El Faye that eventually she's going to branch out and try her luck on her own, establishing the 300 Club, also located in New York. Now, the 300 Club would open and shut down periodically for a lot of reasons, some of which involved law enforcement and some of which involved uh, faulty, shoddy business practices. But the 300 Club was grounded in catering to a very exclusive audience who expected lavish accommodations and phenomenal entertainment when they went to go see that. Another speak that I always like talking about would be Ratner's Back Room. Now, Ratner's was literally in the back of Ratner's Restaurant, which served in its day job, you should say, as a kosher-style deli in New York. It had a secret back door that would let patrons into the room, into the back room, and Ratner's is going to become the essence of what we think of as a speakeasy. It was secret, it was exclusive, and it catered to patrons by getting them to believe that they were really getting away with something by coming in there. And of course, it had lavish accommodations. It really followed in the footsteps of El Fay. It was the speakeasy of choice of former rock star gangsters like Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel. I want to switch gears here, move a little bit away from New York and talk about Chicago because one of the more famous speakeasies in Chicago was owned and operated by the Torrio Capone Group and it was known as the Green Mill. It was mostly owned and operated by Al Capone and a guy that's going to come to be known as his underling, Jack, Machine Gun Jack McGurn. Now McGurn was originally born Vincenzo Antonio Gibraltar But he's eventually going to adopt the name, partly through his professional boxing career and partly for reasons involving his criminal enterprise, as Jack McGurn. He'll be integral, and he'll certainly ingratiate himself to Capone, who was operating the outfit in Chicago by this point in time, when he assassinated a few Irish crime bosses who had killed his father after they mistook him for one of their Italian rivals back in New York. We'll learn a lot more about Machine Gun Jack, but uh, for right now, um, I want to talk to you about uh, the, the headliner entertainer of the Green Mill, and that was a comedian by the name of Joe E. Lewis. Now, just like El Fay had established this idea that you gotta give a peop, uh, you got to give the people a reason to choose your club as opposed to someone else's, Capone and McGurn understood this as well, which is why they reached out to Lewis. Well, there's this really famous incident in 1927 where Lewis just patently refused to perform. And McGurn really had some good persuasive ability, and, and by persuasive ability, I mean he he slashed his throat. Now, Lewis survived, and, and it quickly became known that you don't get on the wrong side of the Capone-McGurn sort of duality here. But nonetheless, uh, this, is, this is what people had come to expect with respect to uh, the speakeasy. Uh, Capone himself almost set up like a de facto operational uh, uh, base in the Green Mill. He had his favorite booth, which was located in the very back of the club, and it had clear views of the floor. He could monitor his patrons, and he could monitor anybody that was potentially coming in there to do him a little bit of harm, or you get the idea. And in addition, the Green Mill had access to tunnels that were located behind the bar, and it made it easy to escape the authorities should they ever show up. So as you can see, speakeasies naturally lend themselves to the mixing of Americans, people from all walks of life, and they obviously contributed to the development of a national American culture. But as you're going to find out, they're also going to dovetail nicely with the changing gender norms of the era. In addition to everything else that we've talked about here today with respect to social change, the 1920s is also a time period of rapid fluidity with respect to gender norms. What was acceptable behavior for men and women and where that behavior was considered to be acceptable. When I'm teaching this time period in my classes, I often introduce students to what I call the new woman. Now what I mean by that is a woman that had a much more public role to play in American life. Now for all of you students of American history, you can tell me that 1920 is the year that the 19th Amendment is adopted. And what that does is it gives 51% of the American population the right to partake in the democratic process. The 19th Amendment gives women the right to vote. And so for the first time in American history, you have this newfound freedom that women are beginning to exercise. And they begin to enter into the paid labor force in unprecedented numbers. In 1923, you see the emergence of what's going to come to be known as the Equal Rights Amendment. And now that we all agree that men and women are equal, at least insofar as the vote is concerned, we ought to write this down in the Constitution. And the concept behind what comes to be known as ERA is basically that there is no difference between men and women as far as the law is concerned. Now, this is more or less another story for a different episode, but the bottom line is ERA is going to be defeated, but by not necessarily the people that you would think. It's actually going to be defeated by progressive women, people like Jane Addams, who are going to say, listen, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We've worked hard for a lot of years to establish laws that are specifically designed to protect women. So you don't really want to paint them as exactly the same as far as the law is concerned. Anyway, The flapper may not have represented the vast majority of American women, but it certainly illuminated the changing gender norms that came to define the era. Now when I say flapper, of course I'm talking about a woman whose behavior and persona was far, far more public. But you're really talking about a hipster woman. This is a woman who smoked and fraternized in front of the company of men and in the process she's going to challenge a lot of very mainstream views with respect to woman's proper role in American society. And where this challenge is taking place is none other than the speakeasies. Let me give you a quick case in point. In the heyday of the old west Uh, in the saloons of places like Fort Worth and Laramie and you, you name it. Men drank one of two things. First of all, this is a very male world, and the men that entered into those Old West saloons either drank beer or straight alcohol. And in an era where Jim Beam and Jack Daniels weren't exactly readily available on any street corner, bathhouse gin... Moonshine, those were tough on the tongue. They were not exactly easy to drink. And what you're going to see emerge in the speakeasies as women are entering into speakeasies, as customers more and more, you're going to see the emergence of the cocktail. Okay? Mixed drinks that are beginning to cater specifically to the taste of women in these speakeasies. So once again, the 1920s is a really important time period with respect to social change. And you see that change show up in more ways than one, including gender norms. Okay. Now there's one last, uh, there's one last speakeasy that I want to introduce you to before we begin to move in the direction of wrapping things up. And that would be the Cotton Club. Now you can't understand the Cotton Club unless you know who Jack Johnson is. In case you don't know, Jack Johnson is the first ever African-American heavyweight champion of the world. Boxing by 1920 on any given day was number one, two, or three, depending on who you ask in terms of the most popular sports in America. So to be the heavyweight champion was sort of the pinnacle of masculinity. You had reached the pinnacle, the top of the sporting world. This isn't a sports history series, and we're not really going to dig into this, but for a lot of reasons, Jack Johnson is essentially, you know, a very taboo individual insofar as white America is concerned. But in 1920, this is after he had actually taken a dive and thrown the heavyweight championship. He opened a speakeasy in New York, and he called this the Club Deluxe, and it was opened on the corner of 142nd Street and uh, Lennox in the heart of Harlem. Several years are going to pass, and he's actually going to transition his business to our good friend, Oni Madden. Now, if you think about this, this was an enforcer for Bill Dwyer, the, the famous run-rummer once upon a time in New York, Oney Madden should not be lost on you. Well, in 1923, Madden was fresh out of a sentence from Sing Sing Prison, and he's going to provide the political connections, he's going to provide the enforcement muscle, uh, and he's going to establish an outlet for gangsters to sell their liquor. And, of course, I'm talking about the Club Deluxe. In 1923, Oney Madden is going to take over this club, and he's going to rename it. He's going to call it the Cotton Club. And he's going to bring some new business practices that's really going to help establish the Cotton Club as the premier speakeasy of the Roaring Twenties. One thing that he's going to do is introduce the concept of Celebrity Nights. He's going to bring in people like Mae West, who is a famous actress. Judy Garland, another famous actress. Al Jolson, one of the most famous musicians of the 1920s, very much a household name. Jimmy Durant, a comedian and actor. George Gershwin, a composer and a pianist. A little bit later in the decade he is going to introduce what comes to be known as the Cotton Club Parades. He's going to have an absolute parade of very famous jazz musicians that included people like Duke Ellington, uh, the pride of Detroit, Bessie Smith, a blues musician but a very famous musician all the same, Fletcher Henderson who was a composer and a pianist, Everybody has heard the name Billie Holiday, a very famous jazz singer. She was famous, she was featured in one of these Cotton Club parades. Louis Armstrong, another very very famous jazz musician of the era. And of course, you've got groups like the Berry Brothers and other exotic acrobatic dancers. I don't know if you were keeping score, but with respect to the Cotton Club parades, Those were black performers that were performing for predominantly white audiences. Here's the thing about the Cotton Club and some of the innovations that Oney Madden brought to bear with respect to him taking over the club. He implemented what he called the brown paper bag rule. In other words, if the shade of your skin was darker than a brown paper bag, then you couldn't get in. Let me make this very, very clear. The Cotton Club was a Jim Crow institution. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of very, very famous uh, black musicians, black performers, black entertainers, they performed there, but they were performing for more or less exclusively black audiences. And as I said earlier on in this episode, this is not good. It's very bad. It's the shame of America. But at the same time, it does create a very unique opportunity for black businessmen. And of course, what I'm talking about is going to come to be known as black and tans. Now, in case you're curious, what a black and tan was, was an African-American owned speakeasy. And they're just like the white speakeasy counterpart. There are dozens and dozen famous examples that we can talk about. Now, obviously, we're really becoming pressed for time. So I'm going to narrow our focus here. I want to talk to you about Jerry's Log Cabin. Um, Charles Pod Hollingsworth and Jeremiah Jerry Preston are going to team up in 1925 to establish Jerry's Log Cabin and what they're specifically going to cater to are these young hipsters. Now, let me be really clear here. Of course, I mean African-American youths that are into things like music and dance and things of that variety, but I'm also talking about white youths. Now, keep in mind, it's 1925, and jazz is to the 1920s, what rap and hip-hop music was to the 1990s. And if you were one of these young, hip, cool, white kids, you didn't want to go down to the Cotton Club. Everybody was going down to the Cotton Club. You wanted to be unique. You wanted to be that guy that knew of that jazz band, that jazz singer, before everybody else did. And the way that you did that was going down to a place like Jerry's Log Cabin. So, black and tans, including but not limited to Jerry's Long Cabin, are going to become centers of integration. They're going to become racially integrated cellar speakeasies that were jumping with music, singing, and dancing. They were known for things like gin and wine. Now, granted, these were not great uh, examples of gin or wine, but they would serve things like red beans and white rice Uh, rice and chicken, pig's feet, things that were considered exotic and, and very much emblematic of the black community. They were home to drug dealers and Hollywood movie stars alike. And of course, you'd have people like Billie Holiday that would play there, but you would also have what came to be known as starving jazz artists. If you wanted to see jazz in its rawest form, Uh, you wouldn't go to the Cotton Club because those are people that had already made it. It would be like going to a concert at Madison Square Gardens. If you're playing that venue, you very much already made it. But if you really wanted to see this up-and-coming, raw jazz artist that nobody else knew about, you were the first person to really to discover them, you would go to one of these black and tans. One of the most iconic Speaks of the uh, of the era was the Savory Ballroom, also located in Harlem. Uh, the African American poet Langston Hughes once described it as the heartbeat of Harlem. It was owned by white entrepreneurs J. Fagan and Mo Galley. The manager was Charles Buchanan. But really what the Savory is going to do is it's really going to develop the culture of dance. Now, I I need you to understand because we're going to go a little bit further beyond the scope of the 1920s. It's really going to be that big band era that really begins to catch on at the end of the 1930s and really hits its stride by the 1940s. And of course, what I'm talking about is the onslaught of swing. The, the, the kind of music, the style, the genre of music that you and I think of as swing music, bin, big band music of that era, is really going to get its start at these black and tans, including, but not limited to, the Savory. Um, it was estimated that at its height, the Savory was pulling in over $250,000 per year in profits. Now, keep in mind those are 1920s figures but more importantly black and tans were the epicenter of racial mixing it was estimated that 85 percent of the clientele base of these black and tans were african-americans but uh, whites represented somewhere in the vicinity of 15 percent Obviously, there were thousands and thousands of black and tans that extended far beyond the boundaries of New York City. Depending on exactly where you're talking about, they were referred to something uh, specific. In parts of the country, they were known as blind pigs. In other parts of the country, they were called blind tigers. Regardless of where you're talking about, what we're talking about here would be an illegal saloon. And even in the aftermath uh, of prohibition in the 1930s, when you see the Volstead Act repealed, we'll talk about that eventually, um, these illegal saloons are still going to play a very important part of black community life. Keep in mind, integration, and I mean real integration, it doesn't really come until well into the second half of the 20th century. As a matter of fact, um, Jim Crow is perfectly legal depending on exactly what part of the country that you're talking about. In any case, it wasn't as simple as expecting to roll into a bar or a restaurant and being served if you happen to be of the African-American variety. And so even though these people uh, that were running the the, uh, illegal saloons in the African-American community weren't exactly functioning on the up and up, um, these blind pigs were seen as a very, very important part, an integral part of the black community. Similar to Stephanie St. Clair, they were viewed as self-help institutions within that community. You'll see this later on once we get to uh, the latter part of the 20th century in this series. But for the time being, I hope that this has helped you understand the vital role that the speakeasies have played in so far as the culture that's coming out of the 1920s. Regardless of what you're talking about, jazz music, relaxation of mores or values or consumerism. In some way or another, the sale and distribution of alcohol was central. So with this in mind, it is not difficult to understand how rum runners, bootleggers, speakeasy owners or gangsters managed to amass a great fortune during the roaring 20s. In fact, alcohol and the consumption of alcohol was central to what came to be known as the jazz age. But as you know, it's time to roll some credits. I've mentioned Richard Thomas and Shannon King, and if you want to know more about the process of black community building in northern ghettos, see, life for us is what we make it, or whose Harlem is this anyway, respectively. Linda Gordon provides a superb overview of the emergence of the KKK in the early 20th century, so see the book, The Second Coming of the Ku Klux Klan, for more. Garrett Peck does a wonderful job illuminating the speakeasy in, of all places, Washington, D.C., so check out Prohibition in Washington, D.C. for more on that. Like I keep saying, Ken Burns's Prohibition has plenty to say about speakeasy, so see Prohibition for more, especially on the visual representation of the speakeasies as far as that goes. And what can I say, Boardwalk Empire will give you all the Chicago speakeasies you can handle, so be sure to check out that HBO series if you have not done so already. I mentioned this earlier in the episode, but the film Hoodlum does a very solid job of talking about the role that black bootleggers played with respect to civil rights, and Lawrence Fishburne is in it, so you know it's got to be kind of good. That's all for now. I hope you'll join me for the next episode, which is entitled Gangsterism. In it, we'll discuss the high point in the careers of Arnold Rothstein, Nucky Johnson. We'll also talk about the emergence of Al Capone. We'll see how this generation of criminals laid a blueprint for the next generation to really fine-tune the art of criminality. More soon, but it's been great having you. Take care.